thank you all for joining this uh, Trialogue Lounge. For those who don't know about Trialogue, it's a journal for building and planning in a developing context. So we focus on development, uh, developing cities, and it's a journal that has been there for nearly 40 years now. Uh, and it began as some kind of silent revolution against only publishing in academia. And our goal is to bridge together academia and practice. On this episode, Co-Water Voice collaborates with Trialo, a journal for planning and building in a global context for the launching of Trialo Volume 142, Decentralized Water Management in Rapidly Growing Cities. The guest editorial team from Harvard City Universität, Professor Wolfgang Dickhout, Ajit Edahut, Tim Fetback, and Mahmoud Morsi guide the publications of six articles that are, first, Inequity in water distribution during the day zero crisis, Cape Town. Second, greening impact on urban industrial microclimates, a case study in Bolzano, Italy. Third, prototyping water-sensitive urban design tools in Southeast Asia and Bragg University campus, Dhaka, Bangladesh. Fourth, analysis of the governance capacity framework to sustain the maintenance of community-based wastewater treatment facilities, learning from the cities of Sleman and Blitar in Indonesia. Fifth, Cluster approach for scaling up decentralized sanitation, a paradigm shift in sanitation planning, and last, lessons learned from private sector participation for improved fecal sludge management in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. On this podcast episode, from the minute 34 onwards, I open the discussion session. Let's now first hear the editorial team represented by Ajith Edahut. Last week, the world reached 8 billion in terms of population. And the last 1 billion came into the earth uh, over over the fastest period of time. So that's about 12 years and so So we are at a world which has got a huge number of rapidly growing cities. And what we also know that the access to water and sanitation is really lagging behind. So that's why we have the Sustainable Development Goal 6, uh, which has presented us with the with a, with a tough challenge of task that we, we, would, we would like to ensure that everyone has got access to water and sanitation by the year 2030. But uh, looking at the current progress from the recent report from, from the Joint Monitoring Program, even with the current rates of activities, the world is still going to have uh, over one and a half billion people without access to water and almost three billion people without access to sanitation and services. So what this tells us is that we do have our uh, our regular conventional approaches towards handling water and wastewater uh, across the world, these are not enough at the moment. So we need to look at uh, other approaches, alternative approaches and decentralized approaches for water management, both from uh, water as well as sanitation perspective. This is this has been uh, put forward as a solution over the last several decades. Uh, and there's been several different works going on in this with this perspective of decentralizing dividing uh, responsibilities, dividing uh, infrastructure into smaller pockets and how and ensuring that cities as well as people living in the cities get access to these services, quality access to these services in a sustainable manner. So decentralization means many things. It has got several different perspectives to it, several different aspects to it that we all need to consider. 
And our attempt towards this issue, Trilogue 142, was to highlight a few of these, these experiences, these perspectives coming from different parts of the world through our, our eminent authors who have worked in these conditions, uh, have uh, direct access to these uh, experiences. And we were trying to make a reflection of their work in this general issue. So we have six articles. We have presenters from four of the articles are present today. Uh, and we, me and Tim, we will also give a brief introduction to the two other articles as well. Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. CoWater is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska Curie Action. CoWater examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co production. I am Pratimi Vidyatni Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. So our first article is titled Inequity in Water Distribution During the Day Zero Crisis in Cape Town. Um, it's authored by Ms. Nadia Francisco, um, who is an architect uh, from Barcelona, Spain. One critical aspect about this article uh, when I compare with the other articles is that uh, here we're not talking about decentralization as a whole. The, the, the aspect of decentralization is not at the center stage, but still it's a relevant discussion for uh, our, our journal, mainly because it talks about uh, inequity and it talks about inequity by looking at uh, access as well as several aspects of inequity that affects individual households. So no matter what scale are we working with, uh, when we handle the ma management of water as a whole, looking at it at that at the last service delivery point, at the last person who accesses this water was was a really interesting uh, aspect that I saw in this article. It invest the article investigates the term equity. I mean, equity is really an important term. At the same time, equity as such, in terms of water service delivery, is something that's embedded into South African constitution. So it's something by default they are expected to have when we when they have access to water in any city in South Africa. And in Cape Town, is not an exception in this case. And equity in general uh, in this paper was uh, discussed through three windows or three aspects. One is looking at the quantity, so how much water uh, individually these households get. Uh, and another is looking at the access itself uh, in terms of when and how and uh, how much of water or how, how often and how frequent they have access to water and so on. And then the third aspect is the cost, uh, being finance being the, the filter towards uh, accessing what water services and the paper actually looks at all these three through through two different time scales one is before the day zero and another is during the day zero uh, speaking of day zero if uh, if, if you're not um, familiar with this term day zero itself was uh, termed as a term especially for the uh, summer time of 2018 where uh, all the dams, as you see on the map here, all these uh, six dams which are uh, present uh, 
which are basically serving the uh, water towards the city of Cape Town. They were all at, uh, at significantly low water levels. And there was a cutoff uh, that uh, if it goes below 13.5% uh, of its capacity, then um, several drastic measures of water was expected to be implemented. And the day zero was, uh, was they were making a calculation that we have uh, these many weeks before we hit the day zero where these drastic measures would come into place. I will present very briefly um, an article which um, I think is not traditionally fitting into the Trialog edition, but we decided anyhow to bring it in uh, as it is uh, focused on Italy. Uh, but we think from the technology, and it is a very technical paper in the beginning at least, uh, it is nevertheless a, a good visualization of tools that can be applied for evaluating the impact of uh, greening. So basically, I want to present the paper of uh, Francisca Tapia and uh, with the title of Greening Impact on Urban Industrial Microclimate and this as a case study in uh, Bolzano in Italy. So basically uh, what she did was that she looked at one industrial area and then used computational fluid dynamics to using the simulation tool of uh, NVMet to then evaluate the impact of greening on the air temperature and on the universal uh, thermal climate index, so basically the UTCI. In, in the next step, she also looked on how to integrate such yeah, uh, measures into the environment, and she also looked at measures of co-designing and basically how to engage uh, the stakeholders to really bring such innovative systems into, um, yeah, into practice. The output of her uh, study, as we see here, like basically comparing uh, the different uh, scenarios, a current scenario of the industrial area, and then the, the green scenario based mainly with uh, green roofs. We see that according to her uh, simulation, there is an impact on the air temperature, the absolute air temperature with a, a reduction of up to about 1.5 degree less, depending on the different uh, time of the day, but also on the uh, UTCI, so we also see there a reduction. Anyhow, this was a simulation which was not done over a long time span, and it was a, uh, I would say it's a good, good beginning, and it, it just shows uh, which tools are available, and it shows that uh, there is an impact on the on the ambient uh, air temperature. But but I think of course there are more detailed uh, simulations already going on, and some of our colleagues. Uh, might also uh, have more to say on that. With that, basically, I think it hands over very well uh, also to uh, our next paper then already uh, with uh, presented and prepared by uh, Jeremy Antiroda, uh, who is a landscape architect and uh, who has also a focus on nature-based solutions and blue-green infrastructure and climate adaptation. So really going hand in hand. Uh, and uh, he is Associate Design Director at uh, Henning Lasen and at Rambol, and he's based here in Hamburg, Germany. And he prepared a paper uh, with the title of uh, Prototyping Water-Sensitive Urban Design do uh, Tools in Southeast Asia, 
and now really the transfer to another context uh, with a university campus in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Yeah, today, uh, focusing on a different topic, not microclimate on my side necessarily, or but trying to to look at the uh, case study example, and that's what I'm presenting today is for for the paper that I put together. I've um, done a comparative case study of two projects in particular, one based in um, one based in Singapore, a build project called uh, Kampung Admiralty, which utilized water-sensitive urban design tools for a public-based project. And then a the application of this, I would say prototyping this on the Brack University campus. And you see in the background, firstly, this uh, visualization of, of what this integration is meant to be. Um, and I'll talk more a bit about this project because uh, I think the, the interesting point here is less about necessarily the the single tools not is it the green roof for this but really the the approach that's necessary and and this global south context so um kind of with the the basis that in in let's say the global north we have the the opportunity to work with uh, centralized solutions or decentralized solutions within a larger network or within say the sponge city mandates uh, in china there there's a, a given as to what is required Whereas in context for uh, places such as such as Indonesia, such as Bangladesh, such as the Philippines, it requires, I mean, it takes it from the word water sensitive urban design, it, it has to have a sensitive approach because the cultural differences, the governmental and institutional differences, the financing mechanisms, and the climatic conditions are vastly different and more challenging than simply um, checking which green infrastructure element can solve these problems. So it's a combination of the elements together. Uh, this image at the top is actually the site prior to the development. It's a wasteland, it's a swampland where waste is going into it. This is not a lovely pond, this is actually a, a collection of wastewater from the surrounding settlements. But more to that in a moment. I'll first start with um, the application of the tools. The, the The paper looked at what happened in the Admiralty project where a small piece plot of land, less than one hectare, uh, very dense, needed green space, needed to uh, deal with these tools, water sensitive urban design, but also create spaces for people, for nature. So in this tent sense of vertical greening, finding the spaces where green can be put onto the site so as to allow for function to happen below it, there was this uh, ability to combine social, environmental, and um, gathering areas. And this is, again, this is not, not a private project. This is actually a housing project for senior citizens with the goal to bring families, uh, older generations into one area. And this, of course, is, is works because the function behind these elements are uh, thought of as, a, as an entire system. So in this context, larger rain events, dealing with green spaces, dealing with management of water through multiple levels, from cleansing, detaining, storing, in a uh, very small site. Now taking these elements obviously is not a one-to-one -one example, but that was the attempt is to find out which tools work and how do they need to be adapted within the context of this university campus. And, and this was the, the goal behind the hydrology concept was to socially be a good neighbor, not to, to, to get rid of that which is around, but to integrate this within functionally to collect as much water as possible to reuse it and not to to waste it and at the same time to um, have 100% water uh, retention on site so managing large events but also utilizing it in a whole system 
And in this, uh, in Brock University, I have a technical drawing on the right. I don't have the time probably to describe each of the details, but there are, um, there are larger water bodies on the north side, a permanent water body um, as an attractive feature, but its supply is coming from treated and cleansed rainwater because that is a source that is constantly on the site. And the, currently, this is what the actual project looks like. It's actually quite developing further ahead. And one of the, the, the things to keep in mind is how will this develop? How will such projects that take these, these technologies, low-tech technologies, um, will they continue? How will they be maintained? Do you have the right staff trained to be able to make sure that this has a long-term effect as well? And then what is the social impact? How does this relate? How is there a sensitive approach as well, not for just water, but also for the existing context? And so this is what the paper explored. It's not a completed project. It is also trying to, to account for a what is happening currently, how does this look, uh, and also taking into account that during the COVID period, there were some project delays. So what is going to happen next is, a, is an interesting question for us. The next paper uh, talks about analysis of governance capacity framework to sustain the maintenance of community-based uh, wastewater treatment uh, facilities. And we have uh, the authors, uh, Hindra Gupta, Denny Prasanto, Donna Gintek, and Frank Flatterer. And out of them, uh, we have Mr. Hindra Gupta here with us to talk about his this paper. Hindra is a sanitation expert who focuses on standards for wastewater treatment, and he's working at BODA uh, at the uh, AIT campus uh, in Thailand. Today, I'm going to present a little bit about the study, small study with the city of Blitar and Sleman in Indonesia regarding uh, their governance capacity framework to sustain the maintenance of community-based wastewater treatment facilities. There are other three colleges who are, who are also involved in the process. Um, they are Mr. Denny Eko Prisanto uh, from the city of Blita, Mr. Dona Sabutra Ginting from the city of Sleman, and Mr. Frank Federal, the former director of Border Southeast Asia. I think uh, we know what these pictures are about. Uh, this is about the wastewater treatment. So the community-based sanitation program in Indonesia has significantly increased household access to proper domestic wastewater treatment facilities. The government of Indonesia with support from development agencies, I think initiated this uh, community-based sanitation system in 2003 and 2004. I think they have about 14 community-based sanitation pilot programs spread over East Java and Bali. Uh, the program was intended to provide appropriate wastewater treatment to low-income communities in highly dense urban areas. So the, the decentralized wastewater treatment or the DWATS facilities here um, includes, for example, the first chamber is a sedimentation tank and then an anaerobic buffer, anaerobic filter, but not including the planted gravel filter or, or horizontal gravel filter, con considering that the site or location is not uh, doesn't provide sufficient space for that. But uh, the approach, what's interesting from this community-based sanitation approach is that this responded to the demands and also fully reflected the preferences of the communities and the local stakeholders. So from seven in 2003 and another seven in 2004, as of today, 
the Indonesian government has constructed about 21,000 facilities across Indonesia. So imagine the escalation from seven in the first year, I think 20 years later, about 20,000 uh, facilities have been installed in particular by the Ministry of Public Works. Basic operation and maintenance uh, of the wastewater treatment facilities is a perennial challenge for most communities. And as you may understand that facility performance degrades over time. So maintenance such as uh, desludging is hardly performed and also jam inspection holes, scum formation in the settling compartment was grave and removal was required frequently. And also the collection of fees from the users are um, not running as, as expected. And also the fees are very low, like 50 cents uh, per household. A recent study by uh, the Islamic Development Bank found that only 30% of the community-based organization collected in a sufficient income. So very small um, community-based uh, organization can collect uh, their monthly fees, users' fee. And also the study found that 66% of the sample facilities did not meet the domestic wastewater discharge standards. So to put in context, the discharge standard in Indonesia, uh, now there is a new one uh, published in 2016, which require BOD below 30 milligram per liter. The previous one uh, published in 2003, a BOD effluent should be below 100 milligram per liter. So it's a big change and also a big challenge for anaerobic treatment to meet that standard. So uh, based on, uh, there are, considering those uh, stakeholders in the community and also the government, uh, I observed that a diverse dynamic of governance has emerged you know, locally to ensure that resources are continuously available to sustain the operation of the built facilities. So once the um, wastewater treatment plants is constructed, it will be handed over to the community. The community is the owner of the facility and they have the full responsibility to operate and to make sure that there is funds available for operation and maintenance. This creates a little bit um, further to the local government because the asset is owned by the community. The asset is not owned by the local government. So they cannot really fund, uh, provide regular budget for uh, operation and maintenance of assets that doesn't belong to them. However, the local governments are trying to support them because uh, many local governments now uh, they have more than 30 of uh, decentralized wastewater treatment or community-based sanitation. Like in Blitar, they have about 70 community-based sanitation facilities. And in Sleman, they have about more than 100 community-based uh, sanitation facilities. So we're looking into this study to assess and an analyze the operation and maintenance governance of community-based wastewater treatment in both cities. Now I would like to introduce another sanitation related article which was prepared by a group where actually Ajit is also part of so one of the co-authors but mainly Andrea Schmidt um, from Urban Waters Consulting director and co-founder uh, and I would say the entire group are sanitation experts and consultants with long-lasting experience in different areas of um, of the world. Yes we are working in sanitation uh, since many years and we try to find uh, solution at technical non-technical level 
on the questions where how to provide um, wastewater service in areas where there is no public sewer, how to provide uh, solid waste management to communities where even not a truck can move into the community to collect the waste. And um, we somehow have been working long in this area of decentralized sanitation and decentralized sanitation. Um, it's nice, but in reality, if we're looking at the, the trendsetter, it's actually still centralized and decentralized concepts are rather perceived as something, I would say often NGO-driven concepts, something for niches uh, in areas, um, um, let's say institutions for schools, but how can it work? Can it work if I care, if I need to cover 100,000, 1 million people with sanitation in the city? So, and um, this, in this area we're working and we try to develop an article um, outlining actually um, this and this approach, how can it contribute to citywide level? So this is somehow our Western objective, the ideas of the, of the, articles and i really much enjoyed the article um, from from hendra um, which is also somehow decentralized sanitation on scale because in indonesia they really implemented it's massive but still if you look at indonesia which is a huge area it's all still scattered and um but how they can actually be harmonized, centralized, decentralized, individual uh, catchment areas with centralized infrastructure. So, and we try to, to integrate actually decentralized approaches in the bigger urban planning sanitation um, picture. So again, our objective, why what we wanted to achieve with the article is to feature how decentralized concepts and approaches can uh, contribute towards citywide sanitation coverage. Um, then also to feature that reaching sanitation coverage at city level, it's an incremental and progressive path until I have really implemented a lot of sewer network, big treatment plants, even several of treatment plants. It's huge investment, which takes often decades. And I have been living in Dar es Salaam and Tim, you have been in Dar es Salaam. And even in my six time, six years living in Dar es Salaam, the city increased by 40%. And in 10 years, Dar es Salaam is increasing by 100%. It's doubling every 10 years. So in coming up with long-term infrastructure, centralized infrastructure is simple, often uh, it's a long process. So how can we start progressively? So this is why, um, we try to outline a bit. So then also try, we try to give an explanation what do we understand under clustered approach and where can it be applied? And there was a very nice discussion we had with our reviewer and there was a back and, back and forth. So he was challenging us very much. Um, we enjoyed it, this discussion, this pro at professional level. And we are not 100% sure if the definition we try to give for decentralized approach is actually fully sound yet. Okay, so, and then we try to give, um, to try to feature this objective on three very different case studies. And I like to give you just a snapshot on the three 
um, case studies and you could then study the article if you have the time and you like. So our last paper is from my colleague Tim here, as well as uh, Jonathan. Uh, both of them are here in this uh, group today. Uh, Tim will speak on private sector participation in ecosystem search management. Over to you, Tim. Yeah, so um, I think I'm already sharing the good old uh, FSM value chain. For the ones who are not from the sanitation sector, it might be something new anyhow. So basically, this is fickle sludge management, how to uh, contain, empty, uh, transport, treat, dispose, reuse uh, fickle sludge. And we see that this is a diverse chain with different actors uh, engaged. Um, and basically, we wanted to uh, look into what are the lessons learned in Dar es Salaam. As also Andreas already mentioned, uh, Border has been active there over some time and also other actors, uh, the Dar es Salaam Water uh, Supply and Sanitation Authority, Dawasa, and basically also uh, WaterAid and other community-based organizations have implemented uh, several solutions for fickle sludge management. Uh, over the more than 10 years now. Uh, so uh, we started actually uh, to compile the lessons learned within a master thesis by uh, Jonathan Young, who is now uh, part of our team and our colleague here at Hafen City University. And uh, Jonathan looked more into the um, private sector participation. We started with uh, PPPs. So public-private partnerships. And also there, as Andreas mentioned, we had a very intensive exchange with our reviewers. And I would say that was a very good learning for, um, for us, uh, really this knowledge exchange with the reviewers. And uh, we, we were basically say, uh, having a different impression of what PPPs are than uh, the reviewers. Um, we were thinking of uh, PPPs as a large scale partnership. Uh, and um, the reviewers were more seeing, yeah, okay, there is no very clear definition. And we saw that basically even the, the expression of PPP is already a little bit unclear. So we were uh, framing it or talking then more about private sector participation in a way of also how to include, uh, for example, the informal sector. Um, generally, uh, we also have this yeah, excreta flow diagram. And within this one, we have uh, only a small volume, which is actually uh, managed uh, by uh, the public sector. So basically only the sludge, which is collected and conveyed with sewer systems to treatment plants or discharge to the ocean. Uh, and uh, the part which is treated at the large scale treatment plants. So this adds up to about 9% uh, of uh, the, the total excreta, which is generated and all the rest is kind of managed by the private sector or the informal sector. And now is the question, how can we uh, include them in the best way? And yeah, we did this within our study basically by looking at five different uh, implemented um, uh, systems and uh, looking at the research question of which challenges and opportunities arise from different types of private sector and public sector cooperation uh, at the different stages of this value chain. And um, the uh, systems we looked at uh, were uh, one, the very common one, where basically the private sector collects the 
uh, sludge by um, by vacuum trucks and then brings it to a publicly owned and operated uh, treatment site. Uh, then we had uh, three different types of corporations at small scale treatment sites. Uh, one where really the private sector was owning and operating uh, the the treatment, and um, there was a yeah kind of complex. Uh, um, relation at the treatment site where the um, the treatment plant uh, was owned by the um, water utility but uh, the land was private so the operator of this treatment site was private but the treatment plant itself was owned by the public utility uh, then we had another one where basically uh, the private sector operated and owned the entire chain. And then we had another one where basically the um, we called it then the public sector because it was handed over to the water utility Dawasa. But in the time where we collected the data, it was more run by an NGO. So basically emptying transportation and treatment was run by an NGO. And this one was more following a, a, a concept of decentralized treatment, but uh, centralized management, so basically operating three treatment plants uh, at the same time uh, within one uh, team of operators. Um, and then we looked at a little bit more theoretical um, uh, option of having a large-scale uh, public-private partnership uh, and uh, took the information from comparable projects, so basically uh, from the water sector, which was already operated in a public-private partnership before, and also looking at other sectors and uh, at different publications to see how um, reasonable it is to really go to a large-scale public-private partnership. And thanks to all uh, authors uh, for giving us a quick and nice look into your papers. I think everyone enjoyed it. Um, for the next bit, we are a bit behind in time in terms of time, but I, but we definitely will have about uh, 15 to 20 minutes for uh, discussion. So I hand over to uh, Dr. Pratibi Putri. Uh, she's a postdoctoral fellow at uh, University Kassel and she's working on polycentric water governance. Uh, she will take us uh, through this moderated uh, discussion session. Uh, over to you, uh, Dr. Putri. I would like to start with saying some comments on this uh, edition. I think this is an edited of edition with key powerful messages on decentralized water management. I have four, at least four points. The way the edition is opened by an article on drought and closed by an article on uh, fecal sludge management, it helps us for thinking about the link between clean water provision and black water, gray water management. Because, you know, we, we have seen there is limits uh, to the centralization of water supply 
as it relies on dam technologies and canals, channeling water-to-water -water treatment plants and distributing pipes. And we've seen that in this day zero, you know, that, okay, I mean, we have problems of bringing water supplies. I think um, we see that we need something else and the centralization of water management and especially wastewater management should make us thinking about decentralization of the source of fresh water system. And now we go to the second uh, message that I think very important is that we have two articles on uh, water sensitive urban design that is applicable not only for uh, post-industrial urban regeneration as in the context of Italian cities, but also in the context of Singapore Island where fresh water bodies are limited as well as in the context of Bangladesh um, through selective implementations, in this case, buildings with public functions like university. The impacts of the implementations indeed can also be linked to the first point to provide slowdown runoff infrastructures, uh, help discharge groundwater, and then protection of surface water quality. And in this way, we secure the provisions of basic water and infrastructures and services. But this is, a, I think, an advanced system. What I mean by this is that this can only be made possible when basic environmental sanitation systems are already in place. That is to isolate um, uh, human and industrialist waste. Uh, the third uh, point that I would like to say is that in this trialogue edition, uh, the spatial dimension of wastewater management is very strong, articulated. And in these last three articles, we have seen that, that this is very relevant uh, in bridging water management and spatial development planning. I just returned from Jakarta last night, and I had a workshop with some architects. <laughs> it was very funny because architects are having quite a low literacy about water management. And... I think this is another day I also talked to Anja Stockman, also from Harvard City University, and, and she said as a landscape architect, landscape architect, she tries to educate architects to be more aware about, about water, huh? because this is, uh, I mean, the aesthetics and the functionality should not be separated from the ecological environmental performance. So then we see that, um, I think, uh, the. The article about the cluster approach, I think it's very nice to, to coin it as a clustering approach and also sequencing, like an article of uh, Tim Fedback and uh, Jonathan uh, Young about uh, sequencing. So we can imagine like the spatial dimension at which level of, of scale uh, we have to put these uh, functions. And then, of course, the governance factors, and especially the article by the border team and the Blitar and Indonesian case here at the center of who should, um, or the financial institutional uh, uh, challenges within this problems uh, of water and sanitation. And especially when we think about clustering and sequencing, then we can see it uh, much more um, I think, yeah, we, we could imagine uh, better uh, how these uh, institutional problems are in place. From this, I would like to uh, invite the authors to think beyond uh, their articles, um, to think about 
cross-subsidy among diverse social economic communities? Because I think we have we have discussed that somehow it's a burden, and in many, uh, especially within southern countries, the government. I mean, in Indonesia, it's only one percent of the the whole public uh, work public work budget. Uh, to especially wastewater infrastructure and the rest is goes to bridge and to roads and 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 private sector development uh you know shopping malls and large scale real estate projects they put really less attentions unless they think it's more benefiting so how can we 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 put cross subsidy in 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 this provision because what i'm saying is that i just recently also came back from jakarta to do the survey of this uh jakarta bay uh real, big real estate development they have own desalination process and there's one shopping mall they can already have uh, investment on gray water recycle and so they can use it again they they lower the cost for their um because Jakarta governance increased the groundwater tax, so they have to think how to deal with their business. But uh, uh, poor people settlement, they cannot do this. And I'm thinking, for example, as the case of this Bangladesh uh, simulation of one university, what can they do for greening their, their estate? But maybe they can also give water to the surrounding of slums, for example. So we think all this diversity of, of functions within the city, um, and they could in a way illustrate the possibility, a model for cross-subsidy that is also guided by these technological options and sequencing and clustering. So I open discussion, please. Uh, I know there's no short answer, but please give directions. Maybe you could have kind of basic ideas to, to really advance uh, our discussion beyond our articles. Thank you. Carlo, maybe you could start and maybe introduce a little bit yourself to us. Yes, hello. Uh, thank you for the uh, insight to your works and the articles. Um, I'm a landscape architect from Germany and I'm working in most my, of my work is in Germany. So I have an international view uh, by your articles and uh, the, the insight. Um, I have one question because this question is always in germany one of the important we, we have the technique we have humans uh, uh, to build uh, the new technology then the technology systems um, but um, the most um, important or one of the most important question is uh, of the operational and the maintenance um, we uh, implement, uh, we build a, a new technique, and uh, then we have the question, how is the continuation of this technique and the, or, or the technique or the humans, uh, do they have to do this, or we have, have the uh, special form of um, uh, partnerships. So uh, this is, I think, one of the one important question uh, which is, uh, the, where are the problems, where are the success uh, factors uh, for uh, uh, a good running system uh, in, in, after you have the good ideas. And um, so I ask you for the recommendation 
for the future uh, of the projects. Um, Maybe Tim, you have some. Yeah, uh, I, I would almost point over to Hendra because I think uh, uh, this was really impressive. Uh, basically, we analyzed five systems within our study, and Hendra uh, twenty-one thousand. Yeah, uh, study. Uh, so um, maybe Hendra, you have some uh, more uh, feedback on that. What would be your uh, main recommendations, observations on how really to uh, maintain uh, the different uh, systems which have been implemented? Yeah. No, I didn't do twenty-one thousand uh, check. Only only two cities, but they have I think uh, more than one hundred uh, wastewater treatment plants. Um, basically, in Indonesia, they were uh, if you look at the small medium cities, they have either individual septic tanks um, can be interpreted as the rectangular proper fit septic tanks or another kind of uh, soap pit. Yeah? And the second one is the decentralized system. So uh, when we talk about typical um, maintenance for decentralized system, usually it's just, uh, I think, sort of disludging and also removing scum and uh, um, also removing the solid particles that clog the sewage system, those kind of uh, uh, regularity that the community has, has to perform. But then, when we talk about uh, septic tank, I think it's also uh, uh, the same kind of um, maintenance, like uh, the sludging as well. The maybe period is almost the same, like every two years, every two, three years, and therefore that requires another uh, another uh, type of treatment, which is you studied in the fatal sludge treatment plan, and of course that also will be is entitled to a different kind of. Uh, maintenance. So I think uh, for decentralized wastewater treatment system, I would say for, I think it's the easiest part of uh, the easiest, easiest maintenance that people can do because there is no um, chemical um, uh, injection or there is no electrical or mechanical parts that is involved. But when it involves mechanical parts, like the one in the centralized system that I have ever seen, I think that also requires a different different spectrum of of, uh, of maintenance. I hope that answers Carlos' question. Uh, I, I think this is a very um, yeah, context specific um, question. Yeah? So, and I may imagine each almost each of us have uh, somehow looked into this this question. Uh, also, Jeremy, I can imagine. And yeah, Jutta, actually, I was almost about to point to your direction, uh, also to building up on our, um, uh, yeah, basically our article, and then your experience also from Tunduma, Tanzania, and what are your uh, recommendations? Um, I think um, what, what I would like to say to that question is not only based on my Tanzanian, but also on my Indonesian experience when I was working there high end. Um, so I think um, the, the biggest problem in decentralized sanitation systems um, to do operational maintenance is the, um, the funding source. So basically to make people pay for a service. That is really a challenge. Why? Um, in Indonesia, for example, a lot of these decentralized systems um, are in areas where you have no 
water supply from a utility. If you have no water supply from a utility, you also have not that um, modus of monthly payment of uh, fees um, because the people have wells or whatever. So it is very difficult yeah, to collect uh, fees for a service. That is, was my experience. And in Tanzania, also, we worked in informal settlements. In informal settlements, people get their water from another source, but not piped. So they are not integrated in a city-wide uh, tariff system where you basically pay like a tax your water bill. Yeah, And if you don't have that in place for decentralized system, it becomes very difficult. But if you have not a regular income of funding for a service, the service is slowly getting less and less good uh, because not maintained. So I think this is for me a key problem in decentralized services, in all decentralized services. You have to integrate them in a citywide coverage of cost. Then, then it will improve. Maybe a challenging uh, question uh, coming back to that, uh, because we had our uh, best example, basically Kigamboni, you know it, the FSTP. Um, and uh, now we are also thinking of going one step ahead and really making that uh, this multiple streams of revenues yeah, and uh, a community based because we experienced that yeah, uh, it is really challenging to implement a citywide system. This is a very long term process. And uh, at least to bridge the gap in the beginning, to work more again on a community-based approach uh, and there to uh, link different services. To, so really this, this vision of uh, linking solid waste management, fickle sludge management, wastewater management, reuse of also uh, uh, the, the water, uh, also stormwater. Yeah? So if we can think into the direction of organic farming, so really having high quality products. Um, and I'm still wondering if this is really a, a vision from uh, my desk here, or if this is something practical in uh, in some areas at least. Someone raise uh, the hand, uh, Francis Dachiaga. Yeah, hello. Yes, greetings. Um, I'm Francis Dachiaga, actually a PhD student at uh, um, TU Dortmund and also at, at the University in Dar es Salaam. Yeah. Um, Thanks for the very interesting presentation. I joined late. I was prompted by Docas, actually not earlier, but I enjoyed the presentation. I just have one clarification, a bit particularly on the clustering approach. It sounds to me like a kind of an ideal solution, a bit attempting to, 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 to manage a water and sanitation situation, particularly in, in the global south. And I want to know how that works or what exactly it means. Does it mean actually uh, allocating such services in, in places that are possibly feasible or still clustering us in bringing different systems together. Okay, okay. <laughs> Good question. I like it. And uh, actually both. Uh, so the article, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. Um, it's showing both. It's A, that we having a clustered or a progressive approach in, let's say, in time. And, and the other one, it's um, from Peng, for example, um, instead of having one huge network, which an area which is um, low, low, um, still low in population, you put a um, cluster of in each village, they call it village, or let's say in, 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 in other 
area they will call Subward or Mimta in Tanzania yeah, at that yeah. level. And um, and you the concept was also here clearly we defined put the same type of technology in it, the same concept, replicate. So it makes the whole management implementation much easier, not fiddling around with too many complexity, which I'm hearing often with state-centralized system. People try to put have too much ambitions in it um, and then it failed to implement. Make it simple as possible, as possible, embed them in a government a regulatory and financial scheme, as Jutta said. <laughs> and uh, replicate, implement, and even um, later on those networks, the smaller networks, if they're growing together, they can also be really connected to a huge centralized system where we have um, a decentralized, decentralized level primary and secondary treatment, let's say pre-treatment, and having only the final um, post-treatment to meet the effluent standards, also what uh, Hentra said in Indonesia, it's now the effluent standards much higher and it you need much more cost. So at decentralized level, kill uh, mainly the secondary uh, treatment and having the final effluent standards met at centralized level. Although this is possible. So we just need to think at bigger level um, how we embedding decentralized system in a government structure who operates, who monitors, who finances needs all to be cleared and then start at snower level and replicate and replicate and replicate. This is, let's say, somehow some message we want to get across. Thanks. Uh, yes, just to add that, um, I, I, I will say, you know, largely Dar es Salaam, yes, my PhD research is based in Dar es Salaam. Uh, I'm a Ghanaian, um, from, speaking from Ghana at the moment, actually. But uh, um, I ask this because, you know, largely our decentralized systems are managed by individuals. And sometimes you realize that state interventions or connection is actually limited. So if you take the case of sanitation, it's a bit more vulnerable in several ways. Contaminations, outbreak, and that. So um, the position of state, or let me say, I mean, local government actors is actually critical in ensuring that that worked. So while it could be managed by individuals um, in a way, um, how that really connected to state actors, perhaps could offer a suitable way in working. In the context of water, that could be a bit okay, but um, in the context of sanitation, there are actually a lot of so this thing. So um, it's difficult to really to leave it with a community base um, who I realize that perhaps there is really not strong motivation as to who is comp I mean, compensated in managing such a system. Uh, so, that the, so these questions will come to play. But um, in the context where we are able to find this connection between community base and then state actors, particularly Dawasa, as you mentioned, um, and in most African uh, distinct, uh, cities, getting the utility a bit connected to that, then I think we could also find a way. So I find it very interesting, actually, <laughs> um, um, something that need that we need to further uh, understand in deeper context in terms of radicality to get that in place. Thanks a lot. Um, Jeremy is still there. I think it would be also very interesting to hear from his side, actually, how how the stormwater systems are um, yeah, maintained and how they actually recover the costs, because that's a different, a, quite a different setting. Yeah, I think that, that that's actually what the, the point that I was trying to make at the end is that with these projects, when you have especially have a project that's running and, and to to write about it, there's the risk that 
that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's always nice to wait 10 years after and to write a successful story. But I, we wanted to specifically write because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. But all these points here, especially about maintenance, about how to deal with these issues, is, are exactly the, the concerns that, that we have, that we all have as we go through this process, especially now. And I actually, we can't say how it's going to turn out. We, we were waiting to see once the final, um, especially the open space connected to the building. But we, we believe that at least because it was done in a process together with the with, with the university, with local actors, that this was thought of from the beginning and will be implemented. And then we have to check, but this low tech, um, th this was a, a push from the very beginning, our low tech decentralized solutions, uh, they may look, let's say fancy, but they're actually very simple tools meant to hit very specific functions um, where the aesthetics are a secondary, even tertiary role. Let's hope though, and this is, this is where I, I'm a very positive and optimistic, I believe that this will, will also show how these are, are the, especially these tools. So the way that Brack University is set up, um, I don't know how much time I have, but I want to just mention a bit, is that you have this, this large building and a small plot. So, and there, this is already dealing with this existing swamp solution. So on the Northern side, we had this fluctuating water body, which functions as both a retention area, a pond essentially, um, but then this is a pond that's treating, cleansing, so all of the water that's being caught within the building as well as on the site is transferred here, is cleansed, and is used as the source for all top up throughout the whole site. So for the irrigation, um, whether it's going to be used for the, the gray water toilet cleansing system we had conceptualized at the beginning, we will see that's where it can be a bit more cost intensive in the long term and operation mates. So lots of unknowns, but this is why we put it out there to say, this is how we've conceptualized it. This is what we've, we've worked through. And I think in five years from now, another follow-up article would make sense to say, <laughs> did we fail or did we succeed? So. Just to, I think it was good to be critical to point out where these pitfalls could happen and to bring it early in, in the process as a pilot for these tools in, in this region, so. Yeah, th thanks Thanks for clarifying more. Ajit, over to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, I mean, before, if there are other points to discuss, I would definitely want to hand over to Dr. Putri. Uh, just last comment is that I think it's really, really good to, to show to the public that is non- expert in this uh, topic and it's really really good to to explain in this what is the sequences where where the water comes and water flows and in what way we can I think I really like the term clustering here in a way that we we see in spatial dimension of it and here it's also very important is that ownership of infrastructures or assets and also the land is one thing and the operations as other things. And I think uh, we have lots of homework to see how kind of diversity of models, how to operate in facing all several ownership problems, for example, illegality, legality, and other things. So I guess um, it's really interesting um, discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Putri. So from, from our side, I would like to, uh, you know, extend our wholehearted thanks to each and every one, uh, especially the, the authors who have taken their time out to make a nice presentation uh, to discuss the articles, but at the same time also uh, all our other participants for the nice questions as well as the engaging discussion as well. Uh, with that, uh, it's thanks from uh, Huffington City University, the four of us here uh, as the editors, and I hand over to you, Dorcas. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, first of all, I would like to say it was a very interesting discussion for me to listen because I'm not an expert in this field. I'm more of an expert in the field of urban mobility. So listening to issues related to decentralized water was uh, also very close to me because I come from a country. I'm from Kenya and I know and I'm familiar with um, these uh, issues that are being discussed and I have also experienced them firsthand. Um, so I found this very interesting and because it could be broken down for a layman person like me. I've, I've posted something on the chat. Um, it's a call for editors. Just briefly, Trialog, um, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, we released quarterly issues and uh, we welcome editors to uh, publish with us. Um, the Trialog um, is also uh, has an association, so you're welcome to become a member as well. Um, I've also shared uh, something about uh, the Trialog membership. As I mentioned, it's it's a it's, it's a very interesting uh, journal in, in in my point of view. Not because I'm an editor, but also it's the reason why I became a member because I found it very interesting to be in this uh, trialogue. Actually, what trialogue means is that it's not a dialogue, but a trialogue between three three people, which is academia, um, um, practitioners, and um, technical cooperation, because that's how uh, the journal began to get ideas from people who actually work on the ground, ideas from practitioners who to get lived experiences of people, and also as, um, as researchers, what we encounter from a theoretical uh, point of view. Yeah, thank you very much for joining. Uh, have a nice thing, everyone. Yeah, nice thanks, thanks Rajit, and thanks. also from my side a lot, big thanks to, thanks, to, to all the authors and also to Trialog for all your support. Thank you.